Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. You know, we have a lot of phrases, terms, uh, cliches even that uh, Christians tend to use. And a lot of times we don't take the time to reflect on some of them. And I want to just share one of them with you today because I feel like the passage we're going to look at today certainly demonstrates it vividly, at least to me. I hope you'll see it as well. This is the phrase I want to uh, reflect on today. The power of the gospel. Have you heard anybody say that before, reference that before? The power of the gospel. And when we talk about the power of the gospel, we're not talking about something that there's a power in the gospel apart from the power of God. But the reason that there's power in the gospel is because God has worked in time and space in human history. God has set things in motion. God has been working his salvific plan throughout human history, and at just the right time, he sent Jesus to this earth to die on the cross to atone for sin, to fix the problem that we caused and we couldn't fix for ourselves. And so he has done that for us in Jesus Christ. And so because of that, yes, we're forgiven, and now we have a relationship with God, and there's been a transformation that's taken place in our lives. If, we, if we've had that moment, if we've committed our lives to the Lord, but that transformation doesn't stop there. God continues to transform. He continues to transform his people by the power of the gospel, and he continues to use his people to effect transformation in the world. And so when we talk about the power of the gospel, we mean what God has wrought in our lives through the work of Christ. We mean what he has done and continues to do because of and through Christ our Lord. And in our passage today, we're going to see the power of the gospel on display. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 11. And we will be starting in verse 19 today. So continuing on in our study of the book of Acts, we are in Acts 11, starting in verse 19. It says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for, their, for the brothers and sisters living in Judea, 
This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So I want us to take a look at this passage today. It's a little bit of a longer passage, uh, but I want to break it up into three different sections as we reflect specifically on the power of the gospel at work in these events that we have been reading about. So here's what I want to do. Here are the three sections, if you will, that I want to break this passage up into. The first one is centered around this fact, that the gospel transforms worldviews. The gospel transforms worldviews. The second one is this, that the gospel brings forgiveness and reconciliation. And the third is that the gospel fosters concern for others. So again, what is the power of the gospel? The power of the gospel is the work that God has wrought in us and continues to do in us because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and its impact on our lives. And yet because of that transformation, there's things that take place. There's, there's ways in which God affects transformation through us. And so some of the ways we see that vividly in this passage today is, again, that the gospel uh, transforms worldviews, the gospel brings forgiveness and reconciliation, and the gospel fosters concern for others. So let's look at the first one, that the gospel transforms worldviews. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a few minutes. But in that context, with that in your mind, let me just read the first couple verses of our text again for you. It says in verse 19, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So whether we've, we've been going through this book of Acts for a while, and some of you have maybe missed a couple of the lessons, and so I just want to make sure that we're understanding what has happened thus far. So everything started right in Jerusalem, and Jesus said it would happen. He died, he rose, and before he ascended to the Father, he says, you stay in Jerusalem. He says, you're going to receive power there when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, but it's gonna start there. And we saw that happen in Acts chapter two as the Holy Spirit descended upon the believers there and they began to proclaim the gospel and people heard it in their own languages and a great number of people came to faith in the Lord. And then the disciples, despite the opposition by the religious leaders in Jerusalem, continued to gather together at the temple grounds to proclaim the gospel, and God was using them in amazing ways. But then we have the story of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And this man, Saul, who, who, looked, who was watching over it all, giving approval to all these things. And a great persecution broke out against the Christians at that time. And so those who were living in Jerusalem couldn't stay there any longer. And so Christians, Christian Jewish people whose families had lived there, perhaps for generations, long periods of time, left homes, left neighborhoods, left possessions, left everything they knew and everything that they had to flee to areas where persecution had not yet reached, where they could live their lives. And as they went, they brought the gospel with them. And so the gospel moved forward exactly as God predicted it would. It started in Jerusalem, 
But then when the persecution broke out, it spread as the Christians moved and took the message of the gospel with them. And so our passage today focuses on a group of Christians who were dispersed from Jerusalem and now settled even as far as Greece. And as the gospel goes forward, as these people travel to these different regions to start over, to avoid persecution, they intersect with other people and, of course, they intersect with other worldviews, conflicting worldviews, people who saw the world very differently than these early Jewish Christians. So what do I mean by worldview? Our worldview is a lens through which we view the world. How many of you like to wear sunglasses when you're outside? Yes. How many of you have ever had a pair of sunglasses that had a colored lens? Maybe it was blue, maybe it was red, maybe it was yellow, raise your hands. What happens when you do put those on? Everything takes on the color of the lens, doesn't it? Yeah, I thought it would be really cool after watching a movie where a guy had sunglasses that had red lenses, so I went out and bought a pair. That was the most annoying thing, everything was red. Looked like the end, the sky had turned red. Oh my goodness. But that's the thing, right? When you put on a set of lenses, it adapts your vision to the lenses. And our worldviews are like that. We all have a way in which we see the world. The way in which we see the world might not be the way somebody else sees the world because everybody is looking through the world from a particular set of lenses through their worldview. Our particular worldviews are formed in many different ways. How did we grow up? What did we hear? What are we accustomed to? What society do we live in? Who are our friends? What is our church? All these things are things that form our worldviews, perhaps. And our worldviews come with presuppositions and with plausibility structures. I know you didn't expect to have a whole vocabulary list given to you today, but these are important for us to understand, not just to our own selves, but in the way in which we engage with others as we spread the gospel. Because here's the thing, right? We come into situations, conversations, we view the world with certain assumptions. For instance, for Christians, we start out every conversation, every thought, everything we engage with, we have the understanding already that God exists. But there are people in this world who we engage with and their automatic presupposition is that God doesn't exist. We believe that God engages in the world in supernatural ways. There are people who have a naturalistic worldview who believe that everything is explained by natural causes. And there's all kinds of worldviews. And so uh, we come with certain presuppositions about what is true about the world around us. And those presuppositions, that worldview, those lenses we look through, tend to define for us what is possible, what is impossible, what is plausible, and what is not plausible. And so something, have you ever reasoned with somebody and you've given really good argument for your position and yet they just don't see it? Why can't they see it? Because sometimes you're explaining things and it makes perfect sense to you. You see it laid out all before you, but it happens to be outside of the plausibility structures of somebody else and they just are blind to it. They cannot see it. It's outside of their worldview, outside of their plausibility structure. So why do I say all that? Because as the gospel's going forward from Jerusalem, from a Jewish area, steeped in Jewish understanding of the world, people who've been transformed by the gospel and understand what God has done in Jesus Christ, and now the gospel's going forward to different people with different worldviews, that's quite the obstacle that the gospel faces 
as the first Christians are going and presenting the truth of Jesus Christ to other people. And so verse 19 indicates that at first the believers were only sharing the gospel with fellow Jews. So you'd think, well, that's got to be easy, right? While fellow Jews would have had worldviews that are much closer to the Jewish Christians, we do need to note that there were also several, several prominent worldviews even among the Jews of that time. They wouldn't have all agreed on everything. They don't necessarily have the same lenses. And so just to give you some examples, there's differences we see even in the Gospels between these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two different Jewish groups. In fact, the Sadducees didn't even believe in an afterlife. Can you imagine talking to somebody about Jesus and eternal life when they think that once you die, that's it, there's nothing left? Even 2,000 years ago, the early church faced these kinds of worldview differences. There were Jews that believed that the Messiah was coming to rule, not to die. In fact, I would argue that that was the vast majority of Jewish people in that day. And so again, a difference in worldview, a difference in presuppositions, even among the earliest Christians. Also, we see in Deuteronomy that anyone crucified or hung on a cross is cursed by God. And so for Jewish people who hear their fellow Jewish people say that Jesus, who was crucified, is the Lord, is the Messiah, it just, that was an obstacle. It was outside of their plausibility structures. It was a different worldview. It was not something that they could wrap their mind around easy. So despite these worldview differences, though, between the Christians and the Jews, we've been reading over and over again in Acts that the gospel yet is making progress. The gospel transforms worldviews. Even more amazing, we saw it in Cornelius and his household a few weeks ago, and now we see it again, that the gospel's not only going among the Jews, but now it's invading the Gentiles, the Greeks specifically here. And so we have, again, a whole different set of worldview differences, right? We have theism, the belief in the one God of Israel, versus now the, the pantheism of these, of these uh, Greek groups, of these Gentile people who believe in hosts of gods and idolatry and these temples to different gods and all kinds of things that are distinct from a Jewish Christian understanding of the world. We now have this picture among Christians of a God of the whole world, but now we're talking to people who believe in a God of a particular region. We have Christ worship among the Christians versus emperor worship among all the other gods in the pagan world. We have fellowship with the Jews among the Christians, but, the, but here you have these Gentiles who looked down on the Jews. They were anti-Semites, they were anti-Jewish. They looked down upon the Jewish people and to say now that they are gonna be brothers and sisters with these Jewish people was just something that was very counter-cultural. And yet despite the obstacles, the gospel transforms worldviews. We see this in verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer aloud. You don't have to raise your hand. But do we always live as though we believe that the power of the gospel can transform worldviews? Do we believe that? Do we live as though we believe that? Because I ask this question because in our society, 
we faced all kinds of conflicting, competing, opposing worldviews. I mean, you could just turn on the news and every time your back gets up about something, you realize there's a whole lot of different worldviews out there that are not mine, right? We see it everywhere. In our society, we have very different religions. We have atheism, those who don't even believe that God exists, or agnosticism, I don't believe we can know whether or not God exists. We have secular humanists, people who believe that we don't need a God. We could just band together and make the world a better place for ourselves. Utopia on earth, we don't need God. And we're like, hey, the Bible says the exact opposite of that. We have different cultures who we don't understand and they don't understand us. We have different languages. We have different categories of perceiving the world. We have different political views. That's not news to you, right? Okay. Uh, we have different views of morality and immorality, and all these are paraded in front of us all the time. We have so many conflicting worldviews in our society today. And so it's easy to imagine that any of these worldviews is just too difficult for the gospel to penetrate. But if scripture's true, we know that that's not the case. The gospel transforms worldviews. And so the problem perhaps, is when we expect people to cohere with our worldview prior to encountering God and being transformed by God. Instead, this is what we ought to hope for. This is what we ought to trust in. And instead, the good, the good news goes forth. We proclaim the gospel. People believe and encounter God, not necessarily in that order, and God trans transforms hearts and minds, and he continues to transform them as long as they walk with him. Again, the gospel transforms worldviews. And so we need to stop seeing differences among people and start expecting that God is going to transcend those differences and transform hearts and minds with the gospel. The gospel transforms worldviews. That's the number one reason that I personally get nervous, or uh, yeah, get nervous is a good, is a good uh, word. I get nervous sharing the gospel. Because, man, we're just like talking past each other. They believe something completely different than I do. They're not going to believe. They don't even believe God exists. Or, holy cow, they reject Christianity out of hand because of all these other factors going on in our society today. Where do I even begin with that person? And yet, so I know that for me personally, I have to remember. That's the power of the gospel. God does the work. And the gospel does transform worldviews. We've seen it for 2,000 years. We should not expect that God has stopped doing that in our day today. Here's the second thing we see in our text today. That the gospel brings forgiveness and reconciliation. The gospel brings forgiveness and reconciliation. We see in verse 19, it says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. I want to pause for a second because I mentioned to you earlier, I recapped this, this persecution that broke out against the Christians in Jerusalem, and they're spreading across the Roman Empire. But here's the thing, there was one particular individual who the text has pointed to over and over again as one of the ones who spearheaded this persecution. You know who it was? Saul. Saul of Tarsus, the one who broke out in persecution against the church. I'll remind you of this from Acts chapter 7, 
starting in verse 59. It says, while they were stoning him, him being Stephen, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women to put them in prison. Saul fiercely persecuted the church. So much so that people had to abandon everything and flee for their very lives. In fact, when we encountered the Lord, when, when Saul encountered the Lord on the road to Damascus, he was on his way to do the exact same thing he did in Jerusalem, but in Damascus, persecuting the church there. And so the people we're reading about today are those who had to flee for their lives because of this man, Saul, and the men that were with him. However, now it is Saul who is coming to minister to them in the name of Jesus, coming to evangelize, share the gospel alongside them. Can you imagine what this must be like? I can't even wrap my head around that. Imagine fierce persecution breaking out against you personally by this man, and then a year or two or three later, here he is serving alongside you, teaching you. Uh, that's hard to wrap my mind around. And are they just supposed to forgive and hug it out with them? Yeah. Is that not the answer you were expecting me to give you? We read this in verses 22 through 26. It says, News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So let's ask the question. Let's ask the hard question. How can someone just forgive after all that? We lost brothers and sisters. They died. Others are still in prison. My house belongs to somebody else. I didn't get a dime for it. I left everything and everybody I loved. And I've, I come to this area penniless to start over because of this man, Saul. How do you just forgive that? And here's the answer. On our own power, <laughs> we can't. I wouldn't be able to. But in God's power, we can. In the power of the gospel, we can. The gospel brings forgiveness and reconciliation. Again, apart from the power of the gospel, the church rejects Saul's ministry. Let that sink in for a moment. Apart from the power of the gospel, the church in Antioch rejects Paul's uh, ministry. And yet because of the power of the gospel, countless people are brought to faith, countless people are discipled, countless people are trained for leadership by Paul. Because of the power of the gospel, churches are planted. And a large percentage of the New Testament is even written by him. Because of the power of the gospel, theological issues in the early churches are dealt with. People are exhorted to live for Christ. Funds were being raised to support struggling believers in Jerusalem. All by this man who had broke out in persecution and who people had no earthly reason to forgive. 
But because of the gospel, they were able to forgive and be reconciled even to Saul. The gospel is all about forgiveness and reconciliation. If you're a Christian today, you know that because it's happened for you. It's happened for me. These are the things we think of most in regard to the gospel. We're forgiven of our sins, our rebellion against God. We're reconciled to God, where once we were separated from him because of our sin. The gospel brings forgiveness and reconciliation. So why would we assume that this fact is only true between us and God? Why would we only assume that the gospel brings forgiveness and reconciliation between us and God? Why wouldn't it be, why wouldn't we expect that it's also between us and others? Consider what the Bible says about forgiveness. I'm just going to give you a couple of these real quick. Here's Ephesians 4:32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Or Mark 11:25. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you of your sins. Matthew 18, 21 through 22. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I have 20 more of these. Would you like to hear them? No, you get the point, right? This is not a Kevin took one verse out of context. This is over and over and over and over again. The gospel doesn't just bring us forgiveness and reconciliation to God. The power of the gospel gives us the ability to forgive others and be reconciled to them. In fact, we're commanded to do so. Over again, this is the rec- one of the many recurring themes in the New Testament. The gospel brings forgiveness and reconciliation, both between us and God and between us and others. So I'll ask some questions. Who have you been unwilling to forgive? Who has done you wrong and you feel unable or unwilling to pardon? Don't ignore this, please. This is mandatory, not because I say it, but because this is the resounding voice of God through the scriptures. If it seems impossible, don't worry. That's because it really is of your own power. It is impossible. However, in God's power, in the power of the gospel, it's more than possible We have seen it evidenced throughout history. We see it in the scriptures. It is possible. The gospel brings forgiveness and reconciliation. Trust God in this. Here's the last uh, example from our text of the power of the gospel that I want to draw out for us today. It says, it's this, that the gospel fosters concern for others. It doesn't take a whole lot of work for us to have concern for ourselves. That's a natural tendency God built into us. It's called self-preservation. But concern for others doesn't come as naturally. Let's be honest, right? Well, I'm concerned about my wife. I'm concerned about my kids. Yeah, that comes naturally too. But what about the others? The gospel fosters concern for others. Pick it up in our text in verse 27. Here's what it says. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. In fact, this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help to the brothers and sisters living in Judea. 
This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So prophets came down, mentioned this thing that's about to happen throughout this entire region, and they responded with concern for other people and making a way to help them. The gospel fosters concern for others. Now, it would have been easy for the believers in Antioch to dismiss the need in Judea. Here's a few reasons why I believe this. First, uh, they had their own problems. <laughs> I just described this. These are people who have already left Jerusalem, penniless, most of them, have started over afresh, uh, and they have their own problems, their own things they're dealing with. And so while they might have a little bit of compassion and say, hey, I feel for you, brothers, I'm going through a hard time here too, though, right? Um, and famine would have impacted their region also, right? What did this say? It didn't say specifically Judea. It said throughout the Roman Empire. And so they're going to have to contend with this famine too in Antioch. However, they still had compassion on those in Judea. Here's another reason. Uh, they didn't personally know most of the believers in Judea, right? Maybe they knew some. If they were among the Jews who fled from Jerusalem to Antioch, then perhaps there were some brothers and sisters that they knew. But the vast majority of the believers in Judea, they wouldn't know personally. And third, most Christians were not wealthy. In fact, here's something we know from history about the Roman Empire. There was a small aristocracy, a small wealthy portion of the population, hardly any middle class. In fact, historians would tell you there is no middle class. And then there's poor. And then beyond poor, there's even poorer. Uh, but that's all there is. There's rich and there's poor. There's no middle class. And most of the Christians were not among the aristocracy. They were not the wealthy, which means they themselves were limited in their resources. And yet they still, what did they do? Verses 29 through 30. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Why? Why would they do it? Because the gospel fosters concern for others. The gospel is all about self-sacrifice and generosity. We knew that already, right? Think about it. God gave his one and only son. Jesus willingly went to the cross uh, so that, to die for sinners who didn't even deserve it. That's what the gospel's about. Self-sacrifice and generosity. And likewise, believers are willing to sacrifice and be generous toward others for, for their good and not for their own good. So are we generous? Do we give sacrificially? Would we inconvenience ourselves for the good of others? It's a little easier to give from what you have when you have an abundance. But what, when you do, what happens when you don't give much? Or when you don't have much, rather? Do you still give? Would we diminish our security? Would we diminish our comfort so that the needs of others could be met? And I think that the degree to which we can answer yes is a good indicator of how much we're allowing the, gospel, the power of the gospel to work in our own lives. This is one of those evidences, one of those indicators of God working in our lives. And if, he's, if we don't see that evidence, then we need to pray before the Lord and we need to give him more of our heart and more of our soul and more of our lives here. The gospel fosters concern for others. So the power of the gospel has impacted us. If you are a believer here today, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you have committed to him as your Lord, 
And the gospel's already impacted you in amazing ways, right? Uh, think about it. You are justified before God. Despite all of your sin, despite all of your rebellion, despite all the years you ignored God, despite even now as a Christian, the things that you do that you know don't live up to his expectations, despite all of that, because of Jesus' work in your life, you stand justified before him. In other words, you stand with a not guilty verdict. You stand rightly before God because of what Jesus has done. The gospel has impacted you. It's also regenerated you. It's moved you from death to life. It's made you born again. The gospel has impacted you. You've been adopted as God's son or God's daughter. He hears your prayers. He loves you deeply. He is concerned for you in a way that a father would care for his children. So the gospel has already impacted you. But the power of the gospel is still impacting us as Christians. He's still working in our lives this work of sanctification, perfecting us, making us more and more into the image of his son, not being content to leave us where we were, but to improve us, to make us better and more effective for his glory. He is working through us, impacting us still as we are on mission for him, and he is doing amazing things, far more amazing than we could ever ask or imagine as we step out in his name to proclaim the gospel. And he continues, the gospel continues to impact us as we minister one to another within the family of God. And so I just want to express this to you today, that there are so many times in our Christian life when we can reflect only on what God has done and be appreciative for it. But maybe we don't look at it with anticipation of what God is continually still doing, wanting to do, in our lives and through our lives for his glory. God's not done with us. You're still here for a reason because God is still using us and he is still working in and through us. And so one of the things we see in this text is this, that the power of the gospel is more than just to save us, but also to continue to work God's will in our lives. And so would you be open to that in these ways and in others as you engage with the Lord and engage with others this week?